law, policy, and markets. We are all coming to the very clear realization that it's definitely a global issue that we're all going to face. None of us are going to get out of it until we all get out of it, and we're facing a significant period of uncertainty. Welcome to Millbank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by my partner, Jacqueline Chan, from Millbank's Singapore office. Her practice encompasses a wide range of international capital markets transactions, mergers and acquisitions, and project financings. Let's get to it. Jacqueline, you and I have been talking quite a bit over the last several weeks about COVID-19 and how it's been spreading and the impact that that's having on us, our families, and our clients. It seems, in a way, that what's happening in Singapore and in Asia generally is at least several weeks, if not a couple of months, ahead of where we are in the United States. What are you seeing? What was it like? And where are we going? Hey, Alan. No, absolutely. And I think, for better or for worse, the Asian economies have had the opportunity to deal with the pandemic outbreak for a couple of weeks. I think in what we've at least been seeing is that I think a lot of the Asian economies who had experience to prior epidemics were able to put in place certain measures when it first started, which weren't as draconian as what are currently in place right now, but just to try and slow the spread and try and get control of the situation. And I think what that when that happened, and that was in South Korea, Hong Kong, China, and Singapore, as well as Taiwan, and what happened in those economies is that they had, there was just an opportunity to for life to go on relatively as normal. And that was very much the case in South Korea and Singapore and Taiwan. I think what we're seeing right now is that there's been a second wave of infections in almost all of the economies now, except for South Korea. And what's bringing that in is really a wave of infections coming in from outside the borders, coming back in. And that's actually required these economies to take much more drastic and much more draconian measures. Singapore is currently under soft uh, circuit breaker measures, which effectively is a soft lockdown, like most of the world. Um, Everyone's working from home. But I think what we're seeing is that the second wave has mandated even more draconian measures to sort of deal with it, mainly because the measures in the first place, while they were allowed life to go on relatively as normal, have now required us to actually take large measures to stop life as normal and to actually try and take large measures to to stop the spread of the virus. What that means, though, is that I think while we initially all had hope out here that this could be contained within the regional borders and that life could get back to normal, it means that right now, given what's happening in the rest of the world, we are all coming to the very clear realization that It's definitely a global issue that we're all going to face. None of us are going to get out of it until we all get out of it. And we're facing a significant period of uncertainty coming up as to when this is actually going to be over. It's not going to be the initial two months that it was, or even the four months that it was in SARS, but we're looking at a much longer period of time now. And what does that mean for our clients and for business activities? not just in the sense of the physical impact of people working remotely, but also kind of the realization that uncertainty could be more prolonged? It's actually a really good question, and it's interesting. You know, when we first started this, like I think this whole thing started in probably early February, end of January, business was pretty much still going on as usual. Deals were still going. Momentum was still strong. 
we're still seeing a lot of deals starting up. There were probably more RFPs coming out for different projects than we had seen in the past. There was obviously a very strong pipeline of activity. And that was really strong until I would say the past two weeks or so when the realization has more or less sunk in that we are looking at significant restrictions on trade, movement of people, like for a longer period of time. And I think what people are finding is that that is causing uncertainty with how deals are effectively eventually going to get through. So I think what we're seeing is that deals which were pre-approved or were significantly in execution stage have largely been carrying through in their own momentum, but deals which were at an earlier stage were, are taking a much longer time to start up. And a lot of this is because we are, we're an international firm out here, so we're doing all international transactions. It's hard to do diligence, it's hard to hold meetings, and it's really hard to sort of figure out exactly where the economy is going to come out if you're kind of looking at valuations or even offsets from governments. It's um, just a hard decision. It's a lot of variables to predict at this point in time. So the uncertainty principle is just basically factoring its way through all levels of decision-making. And people are waiting now for more information and more data in order to make decisions. It's a, there's a lot there to unpack. Let me dig down. You mentioned trade and you mentioned valuation. And kind of implicit between those is also the idea of liquidity. So if you look at the different transactional segments across you know, our practice, there are some which are focused much more on short-term liquidity, whether it's in, in private markets or capital markets. And there are others which like project financing based on longer-term fundamentals, where on the M&A side, valuations may be tricky given the offtake issues you mentioned. But on the whole, even if we have a recession for a year or two, those are still long-term essential drivers of economic growth and development. Are you seeing any differences across the different segments as far as how the impact of the COVID-19 uncertainty is playing out in, in deal flow? At the risk of trying to crystal ball gaze here, which, you know, obviously it's going to be embarrassing if we look back into any hindsight. And oh, it's perfect. Years. You have absolutely <laughs> right. I'm sure we'll be absolutely on point. But I think you're absolutely right. I, I think we can sort of break it up into short-term, medium-term, and long-term kind of impacts in all of this. If we sort of assess that based on deal flow, in the short term right now, I would say that a lot of speaking to bankers and private equity firms and, you know, just global international investors out here, M&A transaction activity right now for new M&A deals is currently at a bit of a wait and see period. Everybody has a lot of pipeline that they want to do. Everyone's waiting for the bargain, but people are waiting to see exactly when the bottom happens. And that pipeline will come back very quickly once there's more certainty. But for as long as there's significant uncertainty right now, that pipeline is held in abeyance for a little while longer. But for the short term, what is very active is liquidity financing. So whether that's short-term bridging loans or whether that's private equity putting in more money into existing portfolio companies, that's going to be a very active source of transactional deal flow right now because companies are in serious need of capital currently for liquidity purposes. So that's outside of the valuation issue. And then, so if know, I may, given, given that stress, sure. stay on that for a moment, because if for companies that are distressed, that could raise the idea of transactions shifting into workout mode as companies seek interim financing or uh, other steps, perhaps shedding assets in order to bolster their balance sheets. 
or it could lead to increased activity as there's a buy-sell activity as, as folks are trying to find out which assets they can either sell to realize value or to buy and for buying opportunities for some of our, our fund clients. I think absolutely that's true. And so I think people are, that group feeds into the M&A side of things where you would see activity in the buy-sell mode. But right now, I think unless a company is significantly distressed, they're not going to be selling their assets just yet because they they wouldn't be able to get any kind of a fair valuation. They get a distressed buyer sale valuation, which may be fine if that's the only source of capital that they have. But right, we think that at least the discussions I've been having so far today suggested that at least a couple more weeks away. I would add that these indicators and these discussions change on a week-by-week basis. There is loads of discussions that have been going on exactly depending on how the virus moves through, the likelihood of coming out of it, with, you know, when you can re- resume general economic activity, when movement of trades and businesses and people can restart. And so I think all of these parameters sort of feed into just when uncertainty sort of le- levels off and people are able to get a better handle on what the world looks like you know, post this period of significant lockdown. But I think, yes, absolutely. But what we are seeing right now today, or these these few weeks, is liquidity. There's a significant need for liquidity financing. And that immediate need, I think, moving on, yes, M&A is definitely going to be big. Distressed debt sales, distressed asset sales will definitely be a large part of that portfolio. But again, it differs from country to country. There are many jurisdictions out here in Asia which have imposed effectively government-mandated debt moratoriums, where effectively there is no ability for lenders to enforce if companies do not pay debts within for a significant period of time between three to six months. And that basically is going to push out a lot of these transactions, a lot of these discussions for that period of time. But post that period of time, obviously, there will be a lot of pent-up transactional demand that will basically come and rise to the fall at that stage. But in the longer term, I think just talking through your, your thinking about project financing, those infrastructure plays are still required. And in fact, I would expect that governments would need that even more to jumpstart a large part of the economy. And so those would definitely be part of the mix as we come out of this period. Well, I want to look at sources of liquidity for a moment and in, in particular look at the bank markets because we're clearly not in the same situation as we were in the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. The banking systems worldwide are relatively strong, and banks have decent capital. That said, the banks are also one of the main conduits for governments that are providing fiscal stimulus to shovel tons of money into economies in order to create a bridge to hopefully a healthier outcome than otherwise would be the case. Are you seeing in Asia the same thing we're seeing in Europe and the Americas, where some banks are continuing to lend, especially to transactions that have continuing strong fundamentals or where there's strong relationship between borrowers and lenders, while other banks are maybe pulling back or having heightened risk assessments or strict credit committee reviews, and also maybe repricing in part due not just to risk, but to their own uh, higher cost of capital. How's that shaking out in the Asian market for now for banks? Absolutely the same way. I think where there's obviously a, a company with strong fundamentals or strong relationship those companies are still getting financing. In fact, they're getting the majority of the bridge financing at this point in time, but other companies are not, other borrowers are not. And to be honest, I'd add another layer of thinking around that, which is really discussion around cross-border, cross-border financings. 
is there going to be more of local banks financing their own local projects or their own local borrowers versus issuing those funds to overseas borrowers? And I think right now, at least in this stage where uncertainty is high, I think we're seeing that local banks are supporting local borrowers as as a first stage, and we'll have to see how that plays out in the international finance markets. I remember many years ago working on transactions myself in Asia where we had the financial crisis, end of the 90s, we had SARS epidemic came on, and one of the things we saw lots of disruption in was currency markets. And you mentioned a lot of local Asian countries are seeing investment by their own banks and their own projects and maybe less cross-border activity. Are currencies relatively stable? in this situation, or is that a risk factor that people should be paying more attention to? I think it depends from country to country. I don't think that, I think each country in Asia is going to have a different risk profile when it comes to currency. There is a really big difference between what's happening today and what happened 20 years ago in SARS and in the Asian financial crisis in the sense that, frankly, a lot of the companies going into this crisis were actually well capitalized and had great businesses and, frankly, had learned the lessons from 20 years ago and were well hedged in terms of foreign currency obligations. So I don't think you can have the same endemic failure that we saw 20 years ago, at least not in Asia. I think there were a lot of lessons learned over the past 20 years. I think where really the, the softness is coming in is trying to understand how these companies and how these borrowers actually will function in the new economy once we go back to normal, recognizing that there will be significant changes in the consumer patterns, in societal patterns. And and I think it's that discussion that still is creating a lot of uncertainty and trying to figure out where that leads out with the borrowers and their risk profile and their business profile and so on and so forth, which is why I think a lot of new money deals might be less difficult to effect right now. But deals, for example, infrastructure, where you might have the government as partner, government as an off-taker, that could still, I think, have a very strong pipeline going in the next couple of months as governments try and ramp up their own economies and will lead off with those projects. You mentioned lessons learned. And let's take the positive for a second. We learned lessons from the crises of the past. We learned (laughs) lessons, right? And as a result, both governments and private entities are better positioned now to deal with this sudden external shock of a public health crisis. Mm-hmm. If you were to advise clients and you said, look, six months, a year from now, the lessons you've learned from this current COVID-19 episode that have been the best as far as managing through uncertainty or resilience or taking a longer perspective while remaining really hyper-focused on the immediate challenges or opportunities, what's the lesson that you would hope we will have learned a year or two from now from what we're going through together today? That's a great question. I think let's take it on different sectors and different types of transactions. Obviously, COVID, and there's been lots of discussions around whether COVID should qualify as as a force majeure type event. And we've seen, obviously, out in Asia that there have been many companies and contracts which have tried to use COVID as a force majeure. And the question is, can you actually ever really prepare or guard against a force majeure event? So whether COVID does end up becoming qualified as a force majeure, I think we can probably argue that it was completely unpredicted and how that impacts contractual obligations and otherwise. The other thing that's interesting about COVID is that it really has hit every sector in every part of the world equally. And so everyone's taking a hit and everyone's taking a toll. 
there isn't really going to be a safe or I think food delivery app. <laughs> I'm not sure that there are other really parts of the economy that would be unaffected by COVID. So I guess the question is really how would you guard against this? And I think the I think a lot of it is if you are doing an international financing, if you're if you are if you've got foreign currency risks to take the usual the usual steps in hedging and protecting yourself against those obligations. And if you're doing M and A transactions, really, maybe the discussion is around whether do you want to talk through the the MAC clauses a little bit more carefully around what happens if something like this should occur. But I would say that really it's it's still a long way. I think we we're going to see many more twists and turns in the stories that come out over the next couple of weeks. But I do think that you know for longer term projects like infra and project financing that it's got a long tail to it and it's got a long start to it. And so what we're seeing right now is that we're still seeing a very healthy pipeline of RFPs come through for those because everyone understands that those take a while to get going. And so there's no harm starting it off even in the in the wake of this significant uncertainty. But for, I think, more complex, high-value transactions of M&A and that sort, I think that's going to come through in a rush once we get more certainty about where this is going and how long it's going to take. And but I think it's that sort of a pipeline that once the gates open, it's just going to be an absolute flood. Yeah, I think you're right. Because you, I mean, you're pointing out what's really holding back that flood will be a combination of fear of the unknown and people just kind of waiting it out to see what's going to happen, combined Absolutely. with the, the deferred demand that that's going to bring. And the fact is everyone's looking. Everyone knows that there's going to be a deal somewhere in the pipeline and everyone's just waiting for the right time to try and make that deal. And so people who are looking for deals are basically using this time right now to to plan and to look around and do their diligence. And we know that's happening all across the world. So we do expect that it's a blip now experience that's coming through the Asian financial crisis and SARS and even you know, the Lehman collapse in, in, in 2008, 2009, was that there is a recovery. This, this doesn't last forever. It, there will be a recovery, and that recovery, when it happens, will be, we'll see a massive uptick in activity. You know, the, it just takes, in this case, I think the uncertainty is just when that recovery is likely to take through. And I think right now we're kind of a third way through it. <laughs> and so we're, we, we just have to be patient and wait to see what happens next. I think you're right. Patience is key. But Jacqueline, I know you're busy, and I really appreciate you taking the time to to join me today. Stay healthy and stay in touch. Absolutely. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for joining us for another Millbank Conversation. We trust you find our expertise and insights compelling. Learn more at millbank.com.